This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Caron speaks with Dr. Paolo Bucciarossi, Director of Laboratoria di Economia, about a report on ex-post assessment of merger decisions in digital markets. Remember that the cases were decided in phase one. The UK authorities didn't open a phase two investigation. And we had very nice conversation with all the people the CMA, the staff, the directors, and also the panel members, and they were all shaking their hands and they said, well, we should have done differently. At least have a more detailed look at the potential effects of those mergers. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. We all know that the large tech companies are serial acquirers. Over the last 10 years, the big five have made over 400 acquisitions between them. Strikingly, none of these acquisitions have been blocked. In fact, relatively few have even been scrutinised by competition authorities. But we also know that with the benefit of hindsight, some are starting to wonder whether too many have been let through to the keeper. Well, in the UK, the Competition and Markets Authority has decided to stop musing about the ones that got away and understand better why and how this happened. And more importantly, whether its previous largesse in merger control should continue. This episode's guest is Dr. Paolo Bucciarossi, a co-author of a report by the consultancy LEA that was commissioned by the CMA to do an ex-post assessment of digital merger decisions. I started by asking Paolo to explain which cases were looked at in the study and how they were selected for this purpose. Well, the five cases are the Facebook Instagram merger, the Google Waits merger. Uh, then we have two cases in the online travel services, which are the Priceline, Kayak and Expedia Trivago case. And finally, the Amazon Book Depository case, which concerned e-commerce of books. Well, the cases were selected by the CMA. They thought that those cases deserved some attention. Probably they were the most relevant cases concerning digital markets they had to work on. Okay, well, before we talk about a couple of those cases in more detail, there's a fascinating section in this report that provides an overview of digital acquisitions and some facts and figures We all know the digital giants have been on a veritable acquisition spree over the last decade, but the report provides some data on the types and the ages of the targets. What did you find out about the types of targets to begin with? Well, let me say that I think this is a very interesting part of the study, so I really recommend reading it. (laughs) It's very informative, and there are several findings we can get from this analysis. We looked at all the acquisitions publicly disclosed, made by Google, Amazon, and Facebook. And the first thing that we have to notice is the number of acquisitions is impressive. We looked at the period from 2008 to 2018, 
And therefore, over 11 years overall, these three companies purchased 299 companies. If we look at each of them, Google bought 168 companies, Facebook 71, and Amazon only, so to speak, 60. This basically means that those companies are constantly on the lookout to see if there are interesting targets in the market. In other words, that they have an acquisition strategy. And that's something that we should think about. A second finding of this part of the study is that the target companies perform very different activities, and many times they provide services that are complementary to those that are provided by the acquirer. So not horizontal acquisitions? No, they're not horizontal in a very narrow sense. I think that this reveals that their business model is particularly complex and that many different activities enter in their production process and what they offer to consumers. And the third element that comes out from this analysis, which is very informative, is the age of the targets. They are very, very young. The median age for Amazon is 6.5 years, for Google is 4 years, and for Facebook is 2.5 years. This is the median, which means that 50% of the targets are younger than this. They're very, very young. And that's something we have to think about. I think there are several implications that come from those findings. So why would you say that the target age is significant from a merger review perspective? First of all, it is challenging to assess those mergers because there is great uncertainty. Since those firms are very young, we don't know yet how they will evolve in the market, whether they will become a competitive threat to the incumbent, whether there is any chance that other incumbent will be interested in buying them. And so it is very difficult to predict the evolution of those companies and their contribution to competition in the market. And in turn, I believe that this raises several questions for merger control. For instance, do we need to change the standard of proof for finding of substantial lessening of competition? Do we have to take into consideration novel theories of arm or do we have to focus on specific theories of arm such as potential competition? And also what is the right time frame to assess the consequences of those mergers? Those are very difficult questions that are nonetheless very relevant to assess those mergers. And all of those questions are really well illustrated by the Facebook-Instagram acquisition. That was one looked at in detail in the study. So let's talk a bit about it. Definitely. It was an acquisition cleared by the Office of Fair Trading, as it then was, in 2012. What were the main theories of harm considered by the OFT in relation to the acquisition? Well, obviously, the OFT started from the products offered to end users. And Instagram at that time was a simple photo app and Facebook had recently 
launched its own photo app that was called Facebook Camera. So the first thing that the UK authority looked at was the degree of overlapping between these two photo apps, whether the was any likely anti-competitive effect on the market defined on substitutability from the user's point of view. And the UFT argued that the two photo apps were not close competitors. There were other photo apps that were available for consumers. Those other photo apps had been downloaded many more times than the Facebook camera app. And there was no concern about the competitive effects on the photo app market. And of course, Instagram's evolved quite significantly from just a photo app into more of a social network service since then. But at the time, as you point out, it really wasn't in the social network market in any significant way. Did the OFT consider whether or not Instagram had the capacity to develop into a close competitor to Facebook in that market? Uh, yes, it took into consideration also this theory of arm. First of all, they argued that photo app were not attractive to advertiser on a standalone basis. So they thought that there was little risk on the advertising side of the market because Instagram was unlikely to enter this side of the market. And so let me just ask you, how was Instagram monetizing at that time then? It was not monetizing at all. That's one <laughs> big issue. <laughs> Definitely, yes. It's a big issue for merger control in general because sometimes those mergers escape merger control in the first place because the target doesn't have any turnover. The OFT could have considered the potential for Instagram to monetize? Yeah, correct. Yes, they were considering whether Instagram could evolve in a social network, providing other communication facilities and other functionalities that could attract consumers for a longer period of time and make them interesting for advertisers. But they thought that Instagram didn't have the possibility to do that. There were submissions by third parties arguing that it was very difficult for Instagram to develop social network functionalities. From a technical point of view, this was not so complex. It's more the dynamics of these markets that make difficult to have a successful social network. Also, giants like Google tried to enter this market and didn't really succeed. Yes, that was Google+. Plus. Did you find that there were some flaws in the analysis by the OFT in relation to this acquisition? What do you think it underestimated, if I can put it that way? <laughs> well, they underestimated potential ability of Instagram to grow. At the time of the merger, users of Instagram were already spending much more time on that app than other photo app. And the time spent on Instagram was equivalent to the time they spent on Twitter, for instance, and Twitter was already monetizing its service. So probably the competition authority didn't get it right on the possibility to use the eyeballs 
for selling them to advertisers, and then developing the functionalities from strictly technical point of view was not very difficult. And indeed, Instagram proved to be very successful in providing social network functionalities to their users. It's very difficult to say whether this development of functionalities and the success was due to the contribution made by Facebook or whether Instagram could have done alone without any help from Facebook. I mean, Instagram only had, what, some 15 employees at the time of the acquisition? I think less than so, something like 10 employees. So it was very little, yes, definitely. So, as you say, an invidious task for a competition authority to crystal ball gaze as to just what might come of an operation of that size. But if we know that Instagram has benefited considerably from the investments made in it by Facebook, tell us, how has Facebook benefited from the acquisition? Facebook got several benefits from this acquisition. There were efficiencies that were obtained by Facebook, putting together data from different users is a way to improve the ability of a company such as Facebook to provide better services to their users and especially to the advertisers. This is an efficiency in the first place, then it may raise competitive concern, but it's still an efficiency. The evolution of Instagram as a social network was interesting also because it attracted younger users, those that were, in a sense, going away from Facebook for several reasons. Younger generation don't want to be in the same social network where their parents are. So Facebook was steadily losing some share in the market, especially in terms of time spent on that social network. At the same time, Instagram was increasing a lot in terms of number of users, but especially in terms of time spent on the application. So we can conclude then that Facebook's power in social networks has increased as a result of the acquisition. Is that a fair conclusion? Yes. In the period after the merger, there are some signs that Facebook has a stronger market power. For instance, we look at the revenues generated by Facebook and Instagram, and they are definitely growing after the merger. We cannot say the same for other social networks that also had a growth in terms of usage, but they were less successful in terms of advertising revenues. And also, if we consider revenues per user, we have also a different metric, which is the revenue per 60 minutes of time spent on the social network, which is, we believe, a proxy of the price in this market. We can see that both metrics reveal that Facebook was far more successful after the merger and also that Instagram had the ability to exert some market power after the merger. There is a very striking increase in the revenue per hour generated by Instagram after the merger. So those are signs that there has been an increase in market power by Facebook and Instagram. But 
To hark back to something you said earlier, a competition authority would have to predict whether or not any increase in power is attributable to efficiencies post-merger or attributable to a substantial reduction in competition. And that would turn on the counterfactual, wouldn't it? In other words, trying to essentially guess what would have become of Instagram had it not been acquired. You're perfectly right, and that's a very difficult question to answer. In our report, we confess that we do not have a definitive answer to this question, what would have been counterfactual. This might be disappointing to some readers, I guess. They wanted to know. Yes, I was looking for the conclusion, and I didn't find it. (laughs) Yeah, but we say we don't know. We really don't know, but the competition authorities do not know in the first place when they have to assess the merger. And that's because those things are impossible to know with certainty. So this is not something we should be frustrated about. It's natural that it's impossible to have a certain knowledge of those facts, which suggests that maybe we have to be happy with a lower standard of proof when we have to prove negative effects on competition. So we don't know, but there are some signs that probably the merger had negative consequences for competition and consumer welfare. Okay, so that's clearly as far as you're going to go. Fair enough. (laughs) Now let's talk about one other case that was subject to granular review in the study. And that's the Google acquisition of Waze, the navigation map, which prior to the acquisition was competing at least to some extent with Google Maps. This was an acquisition cleared again by the OFT in 2013. What were the theories of harm looked at in respect of this case and why were they resolved to the satisfaction of the OFT? Well, the OFT was considering two theories of harm. They're very similar. The first theory of arm is, again, unilateral effects, horizontal effects in the market for turn-by-turn navigation apps, where both firms were active, as you said. And the second theory of arm is potential competition in the same market. So this is rather peculiar because the OFT is at the same time considering ways as an active player and a potential competitor. Uh, (laughs) And well, the first theory of ARM was dismissed mainly because there was another strong competitor, at least according to the FT, and the other strong competitor was Apple Maps. Since Waze had very little market share, whereas Apple Maps was much stronger, the FT concluded that the competition was unlikely to affect competition in the short term. And that was even despite the fact that Apple Maps was available only on iOS devices? Yeah, that's a very good point. That's something we discussed a lot internally and with the the CMA, because indeed the market was defined as the market for these navigational apps across operating systems. And the OFT at that time thought that there was very little possibility to discriminate for Google between Android and iOS phones. 
that's probably not completely true. For instance, Google could place ads only on Google Maps that goes on Android handsets. And this would be a way to discriminate the application across the operating systems and exert market power on one of the two without affecting the usage experience in the other operating system. So it might be in that case that the market was too wide. One may argue that there might be a loss of consumer welfare for those consumers that use Android as an operating system. And you said that the OFT also considered whether or not Waze had the potential to develop into more of a disruptive force vis-a-vis Google. Yeah. What did you find in respect of that consideration by the OFT? Well, in retrospective, there is little to say because Waze didn't grow too much. It's still a niche in the market, but now it's part of Google. So we cannot say whether this is due to the merger or there was, in fact, a little chance for Waze to grow. What we can say is that no other companies tried to replicate the business model that was developed by Waze. And just to be clear, the Waze model was user-generated maps. Is that right? Yes, crowdsourcing of information on maps, on traffic, etc. It might be that this business model was somehow preempted by weights. You need a large user space to have accurate maps. And since many users are already using weights, there is little space for other companies to come into the market using this approach. There has been little change in the market. Google is still the largest provider of this service for Android handsets. And Apple Maps still has a large portion of the market if we consider the overall market. But there is an interesting novelty. At that time of the merger, Google was not monetizing its maps, and now it's doing so. And is Waze advertising? Yes, Waze is advertising as well. There is overlapping advertising activity of the two apps. So again, Paolo, it seems the real challenge for the OFT here was the counterfactual, specifically to consider what would have happened to Waze on its own had it not been acquired by Google. You were really tentative in your assessment of the counterfactual relating to the Facebook-Instagram acquisition, Do you have any more confidence in respect of Google Waze? Uh, Well, Waze was better placed to grow, I believe. was more clearly better placed to grow. I'm not saying that Instagram didn't have a chance to grow as well, but there were more signs that Waze was in a good position to grow. Its user base was already quite large to provide good maps, good information to users. The model was very attractive because Waze had lower costs than other competitors because they had this model where information were provided by the users themselves. So there was a chance for Waze to become a threat for Google. 
this is our conclusion. Again, we are not 100% sure that the counterfactual would have been one where Google would have faced strong competition from Waze, but we suggest that in this case, maybe something was missed. Okay, let's talk then about what you say are the general lessons for competition authorities in dealing with mergers in the digital sector. I think you've hinted at some of these already. Let's start with error cost. What were your key insights in relation to that? Well, this is something that is shared by many scholars and commentators. Many of them argue that we should reconsider the balance between the cost of false positive and false negative. That's probably true by definition because, as I said, none of these mergers have been blocked and almost none of them have been approved with remedies. So the only risk that we are facing now is that of under-enforcement. So there is little enforcement activity. And this probably is due to the idea that the cost of false positive is higher. But in those markets in which there are network effects, in which competition for the market is probably more important than competition in the market, the cost of giving up a potential competitor that could challenge the position of the incumbent is very high. And we should consider that kind of cost and probably look for ways to increase the rate of enforcement. This echoes some of the analysis that we saw in the Furnham report. That was the subject of a previous episode with Philip Marsden. Mm -hmm. In that report, it was proposed that in merger review, the CMA should adopt something called a balance of harms test, whereby the authority would look not just at the likelihood of reduced competition, but the scale of harm that might be caused if the merger is allowed to proceed. Is that something you'd support, given your detailed study of these mergers? Yes, I do agree. I don't know whether we have to change the name. The substantial lessening of competition test, in my view, already has something that can be used to go in that direction. Maybe we can have a wording that is more clear. But many argue that the rules are flexible enough to cover all potential competition risk. I think that competition authorities should be more brave, should try to test the boundaries of this test. Maybe if they go to court and court understand that those tests and rules should be interpreted in a flexible way to guarantee that competition is not unduly distorted by transactions, uh, mergers. But wouldn't you say that possibly changing just the name of the test might at least be useful in signaling to courts that a more flexible approach is warranted in these particular types of markets? Yeah, I agree. And that's why, as I said, I agree with the suggestion made by the panel of experts in the UK that can be a good move whenever you enter the political arena for legislation change. You never know the final outcome. <laughs> so there is a risk also in following that path. What about the approach to the counterfactual then, Paolo? Clearly, there are some lessons to be derived from your study as to how this has been approached in the past. 
You've referred several times to just how complex that analysis is, but your report makes some useful recommendations as to how competition authorities might tackle that complexity more effectively. What were some of the recommendations? Well, we've talk about the standard of proof. So competition authorities should be willing to try and argue that the risk of negative effects is there, even if they do not have definitive evidence of the consequences of the merger. We also argue that competition authorities should use all the investigative powers they have. For instance, we suggest to do don't breeds also in merger cases. But that might be a bit controversial because it might suggest an apprehension on the part of competition authorities that the merging parties are likely to destroy evidence. So do you need dawn raids when you already have other compulsory information gathering powers? Yeah, you have this power, but there are sometimes different versions of the same documents that circulated within the company and at the end they decide which of those versions they want to provide to the competition authority. And there are some informal documents that circulate within the company that can reveal information and they never go to the attention of the competition authorities. Very rarely competition authorities use this power in merger cases. Can I ask, in the case of a voluntary notification regime, which, as I understand, applies in the UK, isn't there some difficulty with undertaking a dawn raid when the parties themselves have voluntarily come to the authority with a proposed acquisition. Yeah, you're right, definitely. In that case, it's very, very difficult. So maybe the UK authorities should also consider changing the system in that respect and have an obligation to notify a merger to the competition authorities before it takes place. But dawn raids can be done also maybe when the merger is only a suspect. I mean, it's not taking place yet. And talking about notification, you'd be aware there's been change in some parts of Europe to the notification threshold with a move from a turnover-based threshold to a transaction value threshold in the hope of catching more of these mergers. Yeah. Now, your report does say something about the significance that a competition authority should place on the value or the price of the transaction. What does the report say exactly about that? Well, the value of the transaction can be considered a red flag, can be used to screen mergers. It's not decisive evidence to prove that the merger is anti-competitive. But at the same time, if a company is willing to pay a very high price for a startup with a bunch of people working there. On one side, this may be because there are huge efficiency that can be obtained from that merger. But on the other side, it may reveal that there are extra profits that can derive from that merger. It is a red flag, something that we can use to screen mergers that deserve more attention. So just coming back to this key point about uncertainty in the counterfactual. You've mentioned the possibility that authorities might apply a lower standard of proof, effectively a lower standard of certainty before opposing a merger. And you'd be aware that in some of the reports circulating in this area, 
there's actually been a proposal of reversing the burden of proof, making the merging parties persuade the authority that the merger would be pro-competitive or welfare-enhancing in some way. What's your view on that? Is it a bridge too far? I'm rather sceptical about this proposal. I think it goes too far because there is, I would say, a fundamental right that we have to take into consideration in the first place, the right of making economic decisions in a freely way. (laughs) And if a public authority want to intervene and impede a transaction, it must have a good reason for doing this. And so the burden of proving that there is a general and public interest that would make advisable to block that transaction should remain on the shoulder of the public authority. That's my viewpoint. Paolo, to round up, I'm going to put you on the spot. As you know, we've learned a lot about the digital sector in just five years or so. If the UK authorities or the European Commission were to have their turn again to look at Facebook, Instagram or Facebook, WhatsApp or Google DoubleClick, some of the other mergers in this area, do you think we'd get a different decision on those matters now? Well, as for the UK authorities, I would say certainly yes. Remember that the cases were decided in phase one. The UK authorities didn't open a phase two investigation. And we had very nice conversation with all the people, the CMA, the staff, the directors, and also the panel members. And they were all shaking their hands and they said, well, we should have done differently. At least have a more detailed look at the potential effects of those mergers. And definitely there is a lot of attention about those digital markets. And so I believe that competition authorities are more likely to have an active role in these transactions in the future. So you're prepared to say they would at least look much harder, but not necessarily prepared to say that they would block these mergers? Block a merger? I don't know. I mean, that's very difficult to say. If we stick to the legal standards that have been used so far, I mean, it would be very difficult to challenge those decisions because they're based on very solid precedents, on criteria that have been used by competition authorities for many years. And so it's difficult to say that they were clearly wrong. But I think that competition authorities are more in the mood, I would say, to take more risks now. And that can lead to different outcomes. the mood, as Paolo puts it, has changed, at least in some competition authorities and the way they're thinking about digital mergers. But, as is patently clear from the Lear report, a different mood is not likely to be enough if we're to see a step change in merger control practices in this sector. Legislative change may be required, and then, of course, judicial persuasion. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Fiona Scott-Morton, Professor of Economics at the Yale School of Management, and we discuss, yep, yet another report, this time from the other side of the Atlantic with its own recommendations on how to deal with digital platforms. 
Until then, you can find a link to the Leo report in the show notes and other resources and links always at competitionlawlore.com. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com and I'm Karan Beaton-Wells. <laughs>